Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Well Nerds Podcast. This is episode 130. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Caitlin. Hello. And we also have a special guest this week. Andy Rogan is joining us. Uh, Andy is a marine mammal biologist who has been working with Ocean Alliance for over a decade. He has worked across the globe, and his career has focused on applications of low-cost technologies in marine mammal science with an emphasis on drone technology. He has been the science manager of Ocean Alliance's SnotBot program since its inception. Welcome, Andy. Thank you for being on with us today. Thanks very much for having me. Really, really happy to be here. So um, I don't know if you want to add anything to kind of your background, but we are going to talk all things SnotBot this episode. Um, but maybe you could add a little bit about like, how did you get interested in marine science or like what was your path to Ocean Alliance? Sure. Yeah, I think it's um, two main influences. Um, one were these kids' books, which are now um, very outdated, but um, they were written in the 60s and 70s by an author called Willard Price. And um, I love them. I still have them here. You know, they're written in, yeah, in the 60s or so, but um, they taught me an awful lot about animals. I think that the author had a really uh, solid understanding of, of animals, of animal behavior, of how ecosystems work. And he, he communicated that in a beautiful way. And I loved it. And I couldn't get enough of those books. So I, um, I must have read each one. I don't know how many times, a lot of times. Um, and then the second thing is my uncle, actually, um, he, uh, he gave me a birthday card when I was five. He, he runs Ocean Alliance now. So there's a bit of serendipity here. He gave me a birthday card when I was five and has a dolphin on the front. And it says, um, I hope to put you face to face with one of these one day. And, um, you know, however many years on, 29 years on, I'm, I'm working for him. So he provided that focus into marine biology. I, you know, he was always the role model. I always, you know, always wanted to be a marine biologist when I was growing up. And um, I wasn't very good at science for a while. I had to, you know, find my way a little bit. And I did some other things. And um, But, uh, yeah, it was always his direction for the marine mammals. And then, and then Willard Price, the author for the, the, the wild, you know, wildlife in general. Well, that's so cool. I didn't know that the current leader of Ocean Alliance is your uncle. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, actually, can you give us a little history of Ocean Alliance? I mean, I know their story from working in Gloucester because we talk about the organization every trip, but um, I think it's a really cool piece of history in that area. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. So Ocean Alliance was founded in 1971 by Dr. Roger Payne. Um, and Dr. Payne has now moved on from Ocean Alliance, um, but uh, he, you know, he was one of the founders or one of the, the pioneers of like modern whale biology. And he was certainly a really important, um, uh, you know, sort of person in, in the Save the Whale movement, which, you know, obviously many whales are alive today because of the success of the Save, Save the Whale movement in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and he discovered the humpback whales sing songs. He's well known for that, along with his, um, along with Katie Payne and Scott McVeigh. Um, and, you know, he was just a really influential bio biologist in the early days of marine mammal science, you know, before the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s and Roger's work and, and other big scientists at the time. Whales weren't really thought of, uh, you know, in the same way that they are today in the public, you know, they were these big, not monsters necessarily, no one was getting attacked by whales, but we really didn't understand much about them. And that early science really started to shed light on how intelligent they are, how enigmatic, mysterious they are and all this stuff and really helped turn the tide of, um, you know, not only fueled the Save the Whale movement, right, but also um, 
you know, just shaped the modern perception of Wales in the public. And I think Ocean Alliance and in particular, Roger played a really important role in that. Um, so it was mainly a research organization. Um, Roger, uh, yeah, you know, he was a, a biologist and um, it was sort of the idea was uh, more can be learned from a, a live whale than a dead whale. There wasn't much science going on back then. And um, that sort of, that was Roger's founding sort of ethos. And yeah, you know, since then, it was one of the first uh, organizations in the world dedicated to protecting whales through research. Um, and uh, yeah, through then, you know, it's been 50 years and we've done a lot of different things, gone a lot of different directions. Obviously, I've only been involved for a fifth of that. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's sort of been a, a mainstay, I think, of, of whale science, um, particularly in the northeast of the states for a long time. Uh, but we have worked around the globe as well. How, how did the idea, excuse me, how did the idea for Snotbot come about? Yeah, so um, the boss, Ian Kerr, um, he has always been an engineer technologist. That's actually how he started out. He, um, he used to build uh, hovercrafts back in the day, um, and he got into whale science through Roger. And this was in the Gulf of Mexico, I think, in 2012, and we were doing um, a program uh, we were looking at the impacts of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill on, on um, the whales in the, the northern Gulf of Mexico. Um, a lot of people don't realize there are a lot of whales in the Gulf of Mexico, which is super cool. A lot of sperm whales, um, not many baleen whales. There's rice as well, the, the newly discovered rice as well. We actually got a biopsy from one, which is really exciting. Mm, but nice. quickly, quick tangent, it's one of the most endangered uh, mammals or animals on the planet. Um, so that was really exciting that we did that. But um, uh, yeah, I've gone. I, I took myself off uh, off tangent then. Um, what was the question again? Oh, how did it stop? Yeah, yeah, how did it come about? I got excited talking about rice as well. Sorry. That's okay. Um, we get excited yeah, too. We talk, yeah. <laughs> Whale nerds, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so we're biopsying sperm whales. We're on this big old boat called the Odyssey, which is this great old research vessel, but very slow. And I don't know if you've spent much time with sperm whales, but, um, you know, you can, you find one, you see it from a while away off with biopsying them. So you have to get up close to the animal and then the animal dives and it's down for like 45 minutes or so. And it's annoying, right? It's really annoying. Obviously the whale's doing what it's meant to do. Like that's, you know, we're not yeah. annoyed at the whale, obviously, but, um, you know, so, uh, Ian was sitting on the bow of the Odyssey. He was about to biopsy it and it dove. And it exhaled one last time before it dove and he got covered in, in the mist and the snot, essentially. Ah. You know, it's, it's not technically snot or, you know, it depends on the definitions there, but the exhaled breath condensate, the respiratory sample, whatever you call it. And it stinks, right? It stunk. And that's a sign that there's something in there. There's biological material in there. And I guess that was the initial thought. And he was already interested in drones. And then it was, right can we fly a drone through this cloud and what's in there? Um, and other people have done some stud studies in captivity and uh, some researchers in Mexico have done some really cool pioneering stuff that was sort of um, the precursor to Snotbot with a, like mm. a gas powered helicopter. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it went from there. And so the next year we got, we took some drones down. We didn't have permits to do anything with whales yet, but um it sort of all came from there. And then Snotbot was a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, they got Patrick that. Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart involved, which was really cool. He's the honorary chairman of Ocean Alliance. So he filmed like a, a, you know, a video. 
yeah, it's it's fun. It's a fun video. They flew out to to LA to film that with him, and um, you know, it was successfully funded. And uh, Patagonia in 2015, October 2015, was the first snowboard expedition. Um, and wow. I think we've done 15 or 16 now. So um, yeah, it's been a it's been a fun time. That's awesome. Wow. I would I would have thought that the snowbot came like the idea from it would have been like they were filming whales and then it co covered the camera and they were like oh you know we could put a petri dish on this and <laughs> you know get a two for one <laughs> yeah i mean maybe you know maybe the the other it was uh karina spider white house that the mexican researcher who did it, and maybe that's where it came from for her but for, from mm. our point of view it was, yeah. we didn't actually know about that yet and it was um it was through ian getting covered in that and you know he already was a, like a hobbyist he flew like a remote control helicopters little tiny ones and stuff so he was already interested in drones and um it was sort of those you know his natural hobby and and his experience in whale biology coming together that led to to snowball. do you know what kind of drones they started using at first yeah so at first we were working with a local engineering college um in oh. boston called olin college of engineering and they were actually building the drones for us um, and that had its advantages, but, you know, we eventually started using the DJI drones and, and DJI, right, is the, the, you know, the leader now in, um, you know, for those who don't know, in, in, in um, at least, you know, uh, public, whatever, drone technology. And they're just, they're just so much more practical, you know, the R&D that these big groups like DJI are doing. They're so easy to fly, you know, they're just getting better and better. It, it just, everything is so much easier and it's pretty inexpensive as well, right? And you can get spare parts and it's just so much more practical, at least in my opinion, for, for field work, particularly when, you know, spare parts can be hard to come across and you don't want things breaking down. You don't want to be messing around with software changes the whole time. So so in the end, we switched to, um, to consumer drones and um yeah we've tried like a bunch of different manufacturers drones but at, at the moment we're really um the dji drones work really well for us oh that's awesome yeah they they are uh, definitely leading in the in the drone space so do you have to still customize those dji drones quite a bit or do they have like mounts and stuff now that work pretty well for what you do yeah, you know, uh, the actual drone, we're not customizing that much. Um, we do have extra legs that we put on them, extra, you know, 3D attachments, things like that, that really help. You know, you can put more Petri dishes on them or they provide a really good place to catch the drone. You know, when you're out on the boat, it's really hard to, if you're on a small boat, at least, it's hard to land the drone on the boat. So we always hand launch and, and recover the drone. So someone will hold the drone up, the pilot will take out of their hands, and then we'll catch it when it's coming back in. So with these extra handholds, it makes that a lot safer and easier. Um, certainly, you know, there are some, you know, some settings are turned on, some are turned off, you know, through the process, there are a, a bunch of different things from the screens and the radio signals that the, the, the pilot is using. We've got a, our robotics now manager now called Chris Sadra is great with, you know, all, all this tech stuff. And, I, I don't really know what he's doing with the drone. I don't think he's, he's not like hacking into the software, but there are a bunch <laughs> of different changes that, you know, make it safer, make it more practical. And, you know, cause it's, you're still flying a drone over whales, over water, you know, it's, yeah. you, you don't want to lose anything. You don't want any mistakes. So um, there are a, a few things that he does do and that we've, you know, our process has evolved through time and, 
tell you what, when we're going out on the boat, we have so many batteries uh, and we have a whole <laughs> yeah. setup for charging them. And because that's the main thing we're doing, right? These days, when we go on expedition, if you're going out on the water for 12 hours, you got to have a lot of batteries. You've got to have your charging stations. So um, now when we go out, it's a pretty well, well-oiled machine, but we've got a whole big setup for how all the drone stuff works. And there are stations at night, you know, in, in our hotel, whatever, for Airbnb, for charging all the batteries and all that. So uh, it's a whole big process. But yeah, for the most part, it's minimally, minimally modified, the actual physical drone. Nice. Cool. So when you get footage of you taking the sample, like the footage you guys use to share how your work is done, are you flying two drones or are you able to have the camera work while you're taking this sample? Yeah, both. So the camera does keep working the whole time, um, uh, you know, while we're flying the drone. And actually the pilot is, he's flying FPV. So he's flying from the point of view of the drone. So that's how he gets into or she gets into position to, to collect that sample. At the same time, we have used um, 360 degree cameras. So it's like a, it's mounted on a pole away from the drone and it, it looks mm. back at the drone and it, it somehow the software like cuts out the uh, pole. I don't know how that works, yeah. but um, but some of the images and the videos that are on social media that have um, that have done really well are those 360 degree uh, shots where it's oh, it's okay. actually the camera is mounted on the drone and it's looking back at it. So these really cool shots that you can see the whole drone, you can see the whale and all that. But we also have done drone on drone camera shots where there's yeah. another drone at a higher altitude or, you know, not necessarily at a higher altitude, but filming the whole thing. So um, we've, we've at this stage, we've done it all. Yeah. <laughs> that 360 camera idea was a really good idea to showcase the drone actually doing its job, collecting the snot. Like, I mean, and, and you could definitely get it topside from the boat or using another drone. But I think that's pretty cool because you're like, right. It's like right on the drone. And you see the spout going past. So it's pretty, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Hey, it wasn't my idea. I, I can't take credit <laughs> for that. But no, and, and some of our more recent work as well is we've, we've done that as well. And the footage is really cool. It really just, um, it's, it just illustrates, not well, illustrates in the right word. It visualizes so well what's going on. So uh, it's cool stuff, the 360 stuff. Yeah. I think you mentioned that you saw, or you've been to about 15 places now with the Snapbot. What are some of the places that it's been deployed? Yeah, so a lot of places we've just been going back to, um, you know, we've been to uh, Loreto, Baja, California, I think nice. six times now. Um, we went to Alaska a couple of times earlier on in the program, Southeast Alaska, Chatham Strait, Frederick Sound, which is um, it's a pretty nice place to go. Um, we've done Dominican Republic, um, Argentina, uh, Gabon um, in, in West Africa or sort of Southwest Africa. Um, was a really fun one in 2018. I was actually, um, I was reading my diary from that last night. So that brought up some, some fun memories from that trip. Um, and that was certainly the, the more remote, um, most remote region that uh, we've worked in with Snotbot. Um, the Azores, um, it's an island chain in the, in the Atlantic, um, Portuguese island chain, the sort of Northwest Canary Islands, like right in the middle, a little bit towards Europe from, from the Northeast of uh, the US, than the east coast of the US, but I'm um, right out in the middle. That was the last summer. That was really cool. It's just this very, um, very volcanic, so these really dramatic landscapes, these big, beautiful islands. Um, that was a lot of fun. We were we were there doing sperm whales, but we also saw Brutus and say whales there, which was really cool, and a bunch of toothed whales and dolphins and stuff. So um, 
yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think, and then we, we, you know, we do our regional work in the Gulf of Maine off Boston as well. So um, I think that's all the places we've been. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Good amount of places though. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, you no, yeah. Oh, it's really cool. No complaints. Yeah, that was 2018. Uh, it was um, the, the Austral uh, winter. So um, yeah, it was like August, September of 2018. And uh, BBC came out as well. And they did a film shoot without with us for a, a documentary called Equator from the Air. And this, um, this uh, presenter called Gordon Buchanan, who like, I grew up, you know, watching his stuff on TV on the the nature docs um he was there he was the presenter so it was really fun working with him and that team but uh yeah working in gabon was a lot of fun it was uh it was a cool place to work so that was humpbacks oh okay nice so do you mostly do larger cetacean species or have you guys used it on like dolphins or porpoises or anything yeah so snotbot you know it's it really differs in, in how hard it is between the different species and for a number of reasons and and from you know not only physiological but behavioral right so a blue whale if you have a blue whale and it's like 90 feet long and it's exhaling and that that rest that cloud is going 30 40 feet in the air it's really easy to collect a sample from it now blue whales can be tricky because they can die for a long time they can come up and and not spend much time at the surface but um but dolphins, on the other hand, you know, they're quick, more dynamic movements. And that, that, that cloud of, of vapor, of excellent of snot, is, it's only gone like a foot or two above the water. So um, it's much more difficult and you've got to fly much lower. You've got to have a better pilot. We have actually done it. And for the first time, we did it about a month ago. Um, Chris went down to uh, South Carolina and he was doing, um, he was collecting some samples with NOAA and the College of Charleston there. Um, and yeah, you know, that was, it's super recent. So we haven't actually, um, or, or they haven't analyzed those samples yet, but, um, so he did collect samples, but, um, it's certainly much more difficult to do that with the smaller species like dolphins. Um, so the, the smallest that we've tried, uh, so far is, um, orca. We tried some orca in Alaska. Um, and then there are a few other groups who have done that. There's a group in Cascadia in, you know, that they're Pacific group. I, I'm, you know, for, for you or for, for your listeners, um, it's a it's a well-researched education nonprofit, mainly operating in Hawaii and the Pacific and uh, California and stuff. And um, uh, they've collected samples from a few smaller species as well, I, I think, um, which is really cool. Um, but uh, yeah, the smallest we've done is orca well, and dolphins until, you know, well, like a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean I've, sadly, I feel like they've done a lot of the that kind of research in captivity with the smaller dolphins and stuff although it's yeah. different based because they're wild um but yeah it makes sense that the baleen whales are much easier to work with yeah sure. yeah yeah Sperm whales, yeah i guess cool so we have a lot of questions about like whale snot in general yeah <laughs> so what cool. sort of data are you getting with the snot bot like is it hormones is it DNA. I know there's like bacteria. Yeah. So that's sort of evolved. Well, it hasn't. Obviously, we've always been collecting the same things, but on the different expeditions, there are different priorities. And, and certainly when we started doing it, you know, we didn't know how best to process the samples, how best to store them, how best to collect them. And then the labs that we're working with, we don't do the, the, the analyses uh, in house. We send them to send the samples to partner labs. So even they, you know, they were working through the process, how to best analyze these samples, how to best extract the DNA and the hormones and, and all of this stuff. 
So it's certainly changed through time. Um, genetics is definitely a big one. Um, you know, that's the host animal, you know, the genetics of, of the whale itself. And, and again, you know, for, for people who aren't familiar, it's genetics for whales is really important for protecting whales. It's like a who's who of whales, right? And it's, um, you know, it's DNA. So it's, it's who is this whale? Who is it related to? Um, uh, you know, it's population health. How healthy is population? Who's related to? Where are these animals going? All that kind of information that, you know, it, genetics has been really important for protecting whales in the last 30, 40 years or so. So um, that is one. But at the same time with genetics, there are some populations of whales that we already have a pretty solid um, database of the genetics or different labs do. So there are some areas, some populations of whales where we don't focus on the genetics because there isn't that much we can learn. There isn't as much value in that. So then, you know, it's more about the hormones or the microbiomes, which is yet yeah, the microorganisms that live in the respiratory sample. And the hormones is both really exciting and frustrating. It's, you know, it's not with the DNA and the microbiomes, it's more presence absence like is it there is it not is the genetic material there is it not with the hormones you need to know the concentration as well right what levels of testosterone or estrogen or or corticosteroids the stress hormones does this animal have in it that's the information we really want but some of this snot sample is seawater mm -hmm. and it's really hard to figure that out to sort of control for seawater so yeah. we're working on it and we have made progress, which is exciting, but we're not quite at the stage where you get a sample and you say, this well was this stressed. So we're working towards that. And um, certainly the reproductive hormones, we're having more success there because, um, you know, with reproductive hormones, if, if a female is pregnant or is, um, or is, you know, whatever, then its hormones can often be quite drastically different from what they would be. So it's a little bit easier, but uh, yeah, the hormones is tricky. Um, and then the final one is microbiomes, and that's the one we're, that we're doing most of at the moment. We're working with GMGI, Gloucester Marine Genomics, which is a group local to us in Gloucester. They're analyzing the samples. And um, it's, you know, the, the respiratory microbiome, these are the microorganisms that live in the respiratory tract of the whales. And um, they change in response to different conditions. And, you know, it's similar to, you know, why people tell us to drink kombucha and stuff like that. It's, that's our gut microbiome. That's the microbiome in our stomachs. And we're looking at this and it changes, you know. And so we're hoping, you know, we think by monitoring the microbiome and how it changes, we can see, right, these bacteria are associated with a healthy whale. These ones are associated with an unhealthy whale. These ones are indicative of this disease, that disease. So it's really exciting. And the last, um, the last year or two, we've really been making a lot of progress there, which is exciting. That was a long answer. I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> That's that fine. was perfect. Um, I do have a follow-up question about the bacteria is, does it grow better under pressure? Is that right? Some of it or something? Um, you know, I don't know. I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that okay. question. I, I have heard things about that. I'm, I'm sure certain species do, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I can look that up for you and, and get back to you. Yeah, it's one of those like naturalist things that like flies out on the boats in New England because they, they love talking about snotbot. But I was like, is that true? That it grows better under pressure? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, different species, I'm sure, evolved to, for different environments and different, you know, pressure levels. But uh, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, I have a couple questions. 
out of this one question. <laughs> what uh what do you first of all say, what do you think whale breath smells like to you? Um well it doesn't smell good. It's the easy <laughs> answer. Um you know, actually, you can find that the animals that aren't feeding as much, that doesn't seem to be, I don't know if there's a correlation there, but it doesn't seem to be as as smelly. Um, you know, it sort of smells fishy, I, I think. Okay. You know, I, I, it's that, that's sort of the, the basic. It smells pretty fishy, um, but it's, you know, there's also like a mental thing, like when you're smelling that, you know that you're sort of in this cloud of, yeah whale breath and um you know it's not just the fishy smell it's you know sometimes you get like the water on you the vapor on you and yeah yeah there's something a little you know that's sulfury broccoli smell yeah, yeah i think it smells like exactly rotten vegetables. It's all that. <laughs> right so, so you actually um, kind of yeah you kind of mentioned and your answer was um they like they tend to smell more on the feeding grounds uh so i've heard that yeah it's not necessarily like it's not necessarily their breath from eating and that it's technically bacteria in their lungs. Do you know about that? No, I, I mean, I don't, that makes far yeah. more sense. You know, the feeding thing is totally anecdotal, yeah. you know, it's just from experience and that could be, I'm not trying to make a scientific statement yeah. with that. It's just something that we've sort of found um, in a few, a few times, but that could be totally coincidental because it doesn't really make sense. Maybe people who understand whale physiology better than me could, could work that out i don't know but um yeah it, I, i'm not sure i want you know how if you like sleep after you sleep your breath smells worse because you're mouth breathing or breathing more i wonder if it's because they're taking more breaths on the breeding ground because they're well i don't know because they're resting a lot more on the breeding grounds than they are the feeding grounds but it could go both ways the males could be up at the surface fighting a lot more too so yeah i don't know yeah and it could differ between species you know maybe it's just certain species that we've only worked yeah. with on you know, on the carving grounds um that they just have better breath i you know <laughs> it's it's an interesting question and i don't know i'll ask my colleagues if they have you know because that's just what i've yeah. what i've picked up in my head and you know the respiratory tract you know it's it's separate from from the, yeah. the feeding mechanism right so I, I don't know what's going on there, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but that's good. I, it's, it's nice when there are questions that we don't know. Maybe there are biologists out there who do know the answer to that, but, um, I like when things are unanswered. Yeah. It was, I've worked in Maui the last three winters. I'm headed there again, but the whales don't smell when they're there, but like I've worked on the feeding that's grounds too, and okay. they smell really ripe. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I mean, maybe that I think there is something going on, but I, I I don't know. I don't know what the mechanism would be there, but I'm sure better biologists than I would know. And maybe as a snotbot scientist, I should know the answer to that question. But um, I'll ask. I'll I'll be putting out some questions after this podcast, and uh, <laughs> I'll see if I can get some answers from 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 some friends and collaborators and stuff. It could be an air temperature thing. Maybe the scent does, is not as noticeable because it's warm air in the Hawaiian Islands and then up in the feeding grounds, it's cold. But in New England, like it gets pretty hot in the summer and they still smell. So I don't know. But Yeah. I, and I think also what, what uh, Slater, what you mentioned um, in terms of like that activity, I think that's probably a big one because now thinking about it, you know, when we've worked on the carving grounds, um, it can be really hard to collect a sample when the animal's like logging, it's resting, and it just, it's a very little uh, yeah. spout, right? It's a very little blow. 
or it's when they're diving, when they're feeding, when they're all over the place, they can, you know, those, those blows tend to be a little bit bigger. And, you know, again, to your point, you know, if there are animals that are on the, the carving grounds that are in some sort of mating activity and they're more energetic, they're expending more energy, you know, we've seen when they're breaching and all of that, they can come up and, you know, spout, yeah. a, you know, those huge blows. So maybe it's just something to do with more of the size and the amount of material in that blow more than anything. But I, I'm not sure. Well, it, it's another question. <laughs> yeah. Another question to figure out. It definitely smells though. <laughs> so what are sort of um, like the assessment applications for using a snot bot in cetacean research? Like, can you use it to actively assess like a whale in distress, like that kind of stuff? Yeah. So certainly the hormones there is the big one with, with the stress hormones. Um, you know, and we haven't quite figured that out, but we are getting there. But that's such an explicit indicator of how well an animal is doing. You know, stress is a response to something negative or perceived as negative. And if an animal is super stressed, that's also bad for the animal because it sort of, you know, it diverts resources away from, from other areas to like, you know, it's fight or flight, right? So if an animal is stressed, that is not good for it. And, you know, something is bothering it. So that is a really explicit one. The microbiome stuff, we will be able to do that it's a matter of time. We've just got to work through it. You know, like with any new thing, you know, I'm sure when, when people were first collecting biopsies, it took a few years before they were like, right, this means that this is a baseline, you know, you need to collect enough data. And also it, it depends on the species, right? So different species will have different baselines of different, you know, stress hormones, reproductive hormones, um, microbiome, you know, organisms, microbes, whatever, stuff like that. The genetics, absolutely. I mean, genetics for a long time has been used for really important conservation purposes to protect whales. Um, so that's one that's already happening. And, um, you know, we published a paper uh, in January of this year, January 2022, which was this big snot bot sort of um, collaborative paper with like four or five different labs. And we went through all of this and the sort of conservation implications. And, you know, the, the great thing is that you're, it's non-invasive, right? Or it's far more, far less invasive than, than a lot, you know, things like biopsying. Um, at least, uh, you know, the, the evidence we have suggests that, you know, often the whale doesn't know we're there. And you're also actively collecting it. So you can choose when to collect it. It's not like um, sloth skin when, you know, if a whale breaches and leaves some skin behind, that's a great source of uh, genetics, but you don't know if it's going to do that. You can't rely on it. The same with yeah. fecal samples. You don't know when it's going to do it. So it's hard to rely on collecting genetic data from those methods, whereas with Snotbot, with that method, you can do it, you can do it non-invasively and, and you're actively collecting that sample. You're not just hoping that the animal sloughs some skin or, or defecates, et cetera. Yeah, you know they're going to breathe at some point. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. If they don't, then that's a, you know there's something wrong there as well. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about the stress levels it's kind of kind of cool because you never know well the thing is is they could get stressed from like let's say it's humpbacks in the breeding grounds and there was killer whales the day before and then you know what i mean then you get that stress level it could be from many things but it's kind of cool to see their stress levels because it could be from yeah and that would be the predator. idea is 
Right. And then you try and associate that. You try and correlate those high levels with, you know, were there orca in the area or was there no orca, but there was loads of ships going by, you know, yeah. loads of activity. Um, was there an oil spill recently? You know, naval sonar, were there, were there naval exercises nearby? You just try and, you know, maybe there's less food, you know, so maybe it's an El Nino year and there's less food and the animals aren't feeding as well things like that. And it's also, so you have to you try and correlate it with the, um, those different variables, but then also if you can collect like a photogrammetry, so body condition data, you know, how fat and essentially healthy the animal is and it, you sort of try and, and tie it all together. Do you guys get photogrammetry as well when you're doing the snot bot? We do not all the time. Photogrammetry, um, it was certainly my like huge hope for whale science was photogrammetry, you know, two, three, four, five years ago, because it's so easy or, you know, we, I thought it was so easy to collect this super high quality data set, like a really powerful data set. And it's just a photo, you know, in general, photogrammetry, for those who don't know, is um, you're taking an image of a whale from above and you, you calibrate your height and essentially you work out how how wide the animal how is, how long it is, how fat the animal is. And in general, a fat whale is a healthy whale. Like a fat whale, it's a really solid indicator of how healthy that animal is. So a photo is, you know, almost more powerful than like a, a snot sample in some ways. Again, that's a generic statement, but you know, even it's just a photo, but it's it can be really powerful. The problem with photogrammetry is that um, if the water's rough, then the outline of that whale is a little blurry. It can be a little tough. So it's, 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 you know, I thought that this was going to be like the savior of, of whale science is photogrammetry because <laughs> it'd be so easy yeah. to collect these fast, you know, easily. You can compare animals from here, from there. You can do it throughout the whole field season. You can just easily collect this really valuable data set using inexpensive drones. But it's, you know, that, that water, um, it, it's a problem it's it's hard to you know i'm sure people are uh, people are still doing it it's still super valuable right but that problem of um you know the the how turbid the water is and how um you know how murky it is and and how rough it is breaking up the outline of that whale um makes it it's still super valuable but it's yeah. just not uh it's not as valuable as i thought it was going to be anyway but that's my opinion and, and hopefully that changes in the future also the people whale will work it out the whales move around so it's like yeah. Like, it'd be cool if, let's say, you could take a picture of Theodore on in Monterey in the very beginning of the season when they get here. But then, like, that whale could probably move up to Half Moon Bay or go down to Morro Bay or go to Farallon Islands, or it could go. And so the only other way it would work is if you could, like, get a notification from, like, Happy Whale or something and be like, oh, it's in Farallon Islands. Let's go try to find it and take another photograph. And then you have yeah. to hope for the weather to be good. So it's it'd be kind of tough. Yeah. Up on and, you know, maybe you be collaborating with different people I, yeah. you know a lot of people have um have done it on the breeding grounds and seeing how you know particularly with mums and calves and that sort of energy transfer from the mum and how quickly they drop that weight how quickly the female the calf puts it on because you know obviously yeah. females and calves are so important to, to healthy whale populations but um yeah it's it's a tricky one um it's a tricky one but i, I still think it has a huge role to play in, in whale science it's just um i don't know I, I i keep saying it but i had such high hopes for photogrammetry and uh you know i was a little disappointed as it slowly became i realized that um it's not it's not quite the the total savior that i thought it would be but i still think it's hugely important yeah i mean at least your whales in the gulf of maine don't really move as much like in california they'll cover like 150 yeah. miles 
and you're like, dude, what? But at least you have a few whales right. that stay put there. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think like if you got whales from like a lot, the Alaskan population or Maui, and then you go or like Pacific Northwest, the thing is, is it's a lot of times it is calm there during the feeding season because they're mm -hmm. tucked in the fjords and stuff. So it might be, maybe it's just like a, you could use it in certain places. It might be easier to do it where the yeah, weather's nice. Totally. Yeah. Abs no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To your point, you know, it, we don't really have that that really calm weather as much on the Gulf of Maine, but in yeah. other areas, certainly we've done photogrammetry with blue whales in um, Gulf of California, and it can be like perfect mirror flat there. Yeah. It's beautiful and it's great. And you know, blue whales also they're not as you know humpback whales are um they're smaller and they're sort of more dynamic in their movements. You know, they yeah, sort of turn and twist and stuff. And blue whales can't yeah so that that that's that can be a challenge for photogrammetry but those blue whales they're just so big they no and they're time. just you know they're not <laughs> yeah they're, they're just they're just they're not they're just right there and it's it's um yeah, yeah they're easier to photogrammetry yeah yeah um pacific whale foundation and a few collaborators in hawaii and southeast alaska are trying to do the mom calf thing but i think that in both places the water is much more um workable cascadia does it as well yeah. So, but yeah, I, yeah. I know the Gulf uh, yeah, of Maine University is of Hawaii and, yeah. <laughs> the Gulf of Maine yeah, is not right, calm right. or clear. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's certainly not clear, which is great for the whales. That's why they're, yeah. they're one of the reasons yeah. they're there, right? Is all that food. But um, no, I I know there's some some really cool Alaska Whale Foundation and the University yeah. of Hawaii, and that they're doing. There's some really cool collaborations going on there with some drone stuff, which is um, which is really cool. Yeah. Nice. So what are some of the future directions for the Snotbot program? I know you guys have like a, a release part of the equipment now that you can deploy tags and things. Yeah, that's the main one we're excited about at the moment. We're deploying data tags on whales. And um, again, you know, I don't know how much you know about it, but for the listeners, data tags, um, it's a little tag. It attaches to a whale with a suction cup and it's like this big. They, they can, you know, they vary in size. But you can you get it on a whale, and when they first came out, maybe 20, 25 years ago, it was like huge because data tags. When data tags started getting deployed on whales, you're finally able to understand more information about what the animal's doing underwater. You know, it's so hard to know that a whale goes underwater. What's it doing? Okay, you know, how deep is it going? How is it feeding? All of this information, we really didn't have that much idea on. You can get acoustics. We've done that for a long time, but that can only tell you that much information. Whereas you get a data tag on and it's packed with sensors and accelerometers and hydrophones and some of them have cameras and, and depth, you know, recorders, whatever. So it has so much information on it. So it provides really valuable data, like priceless data that really has transformed our, our knowledge of whales over the last 20 years. The problem with tags is that they're really hard to get on. You know, you've got to race up to that animal. Um, you've got to you use a pole. You've got to dunk that tag on the, it's on, at the end of the pole, tags at the end of the pole, and you, you dunk the tag on the animal's back and you've got to try and get there at the right time. It's difficult to do. And using this drone skill set that we have and using the engineering background that we now have, we wanted to see if we could deploy tags using a drone, just dropping it. Um, it's not that well it both is that simple and isn't we went through a pretty rigorous testing system at the beginning of this year when my colleagues were dropping tags in like a warehouse on 
ballistics gel that was covered in water and they were flying drones back and oh. forth and this well so we had surrogate <laughs> whales and we have it looks it's and yeah what was it wally the the wally the surrogate whale or walter the something whale i don't know they called the <laughs> a little thing you'd have someone pushing this like trolley with like this stuff on it and then they had some on paddle boards and they were dropping tags on paddle boards and all this kind of stuff but um you know turns out that we can do it and um it, it, it's looking really exciting it looks you know it's it's potentially far less invasive than conventional tagging methods and i i believe we'll be able to you know achieve quite a high success rate in terms of how many whales we're allowed to, we are able to tag and we've done four species now. We've done blues, fins, says, and humpbacks, which is super cool. Um, so it's really exciting. It's it's really exciting work. I'm uh, I'm I'm enjoying being a part of it. We've got a call tomorrow about it. Our 2023 at the moment is looking pretty jam packed because um, a lot of people want to you know a lot of people want to deploy tags and it's hard to do. And so we've got a lot of different collaborations in the works um, that that we're 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 trying to get funded at the moment, which is super exciting. But now that tagging stuff is, is super cool and particularly when you have the cats tags which are the ones with videos on them and you can see yeah. the video of what the whale's doing underwater that's uh it's some cool stuff i know the hawaii guys are stoked like they did their preseason meeting a couple weeks ago and they said they're gonna work with you guys and they're very excited yeah we've been yeah i think um ian and chris two of my colleagues are going out to hawaii uh in um in, in January or February to, to work with some folk out there. And certainly we've been in touch with, you know, a bunch of researchers around the world about this. And, and you know, Ocean Alliance is a nonprofit. Like our, our MO, right, is to protect these animals. So the ultimate goal is, is we, we want to tell everyone how to do this. You know, within reason, obviously you need the permits, you need the proper pilots, all that stuff. We don't want to just tell anyone to drop tags on whales. You know, it's <laughs> got to be the scientists, whatever. But um. But, you know, the more people who can do this, I don't know, I think it has the potential to really help um, push whale science into the 21st century and, and you know, help protect whales as well. So it's it's exciting. Yeah. Um, I also think you'll get a little bit cleaner data because you won't be running up on the whale. Yeah. And so I think, like, there's a lot of times where they're like, oh, the animal's stressed. But it's like, well, did you run up to the same killer whale 15 times trying to get a tag on it? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if it'll be possible to get it on killer whales. Might be there kind of small from the drone but if you can that'd be cool but i just think that it's going to be a lot more and in, uh less invasive yeah less reactionary it, time in your data yeah. set yeah yeah absolutely no 100 percent. i mean we haven't I, I i think that'll be the case as well we haven't actually um you know it's it'll it'll be hard to like compare them explicitly but i totally like that i've yeah. seen tagging and it can be invasive you know sometimes the whales don't mind it from boat based tagging but sometimes they do and, um, and sometimes they notice the drone as well, but we don't really get reactions to it or at least not strong reactions. But I, yeah. I totally agree that it should provide cleaner data and, and the behavior that you're collecting um, of that animal, it should be an animal behaving in a, in a sort of less disturbed, more natural state, right? So, right. Yeah. which yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree totally, yeah. I think your data means a lot more to people if it's the true natural state of the animal because that's like you have to take all this data with a grain of salt a lot of the time because you know was it the collection effort that caused some of the behaviors you got so yeah yeah and, and I, you know at the same time too 
Sure. And, and the behavior, what they're doing at the moment, but yeah, totally. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I yeah, I'm sure behavior depends a lot on all these different variables. And, yeah. and we also don't want to, you know, as much as we're excited by this development, you know, boat-based tagging still has a super important role to play. Like they're yeah. not necessarily different things. Maybe they could be, you know, we've worked on two projects that were complementary. We were both trying to do that. You know, we were trying to, um, drone tag, they were trying to vessel base tag. So, you know, they both have it. We're not like trying to, you know, push that aside. We just assume we, we think our method has certain advantages and, and in certain situations with certain species, you know, to, to your point, Slater, for smaller species, I think it would be hard to get a drone on, you know, I mean, a tag on like an orca or something, but, um, yeah, so we'll see, but it's an exciting addition to the sort of the whale scientist toolkit, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ed Lyman also mentioned something about the potential of applying it for disentanglement effort. Is that something you guys are yeah, uh, ready to share? Yeah, we've spoken a lot with Ed Lyman. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, we've discussed it. You know, disentangled animals is such a different, um, it's a different ball game, particularly permit-wise. Um, and, you know, obviously the animals are compromised. So understandably, you know, NOAA and National Marine Fisheries are super cautious about what you can do around disentangled animals. And, and we've never really been that involved in disentanglement. Certainly, that's something that we're interested in, um, we're super interested in. But, uh, you know, that's that's a little bit further down the line, I think. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I think my colleagues, it, it's a it's an interesting one. I think some of them think it's an easy challenge. Some of them think it's impossible. So, um, you know, there are internal discussions at Ocean Alliance about all of these questions. And, uh, yeah, certainly we're, we're in communication with Ed Lyman, which is super cool because he, he's one of the pros, right, at disentangling yeah. whales. So, yeah. um, uh, so it, that's exciting. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that'll be happening anytime too soon. But, you know, whales are going to get entangled more and more, maybe not in the States, you know, if, if regulations come into play, whatever. But uh, certainly around the world, there's just fishing nets and stuff like that are not going away anytime soon. Right. So disentanglement is something that we've got to come up with better solutions too, yeah. and and maybe drones could uh, help play a role in in disentangling whales in the future. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I don't think it would. I don't know if, if the drone would actually be able to make a cut. Like it just, I feel like anything you're dragging from the drone, like would be so hard to get it to a, to attach to a line, maybe. But I do think no matter what, the drone's going to help with this the disentanglement process because the images and the different views yeah. and angles you can get from the drone already yeah. in the last five years have been so helpful I yeah think. the assessment factor yeah is big. and they're discussing a few different ideas and i i don't know if i mean i think they've discussed like trying to actually disentangle the whale but that again that is that is in yeah. the future but they, they've discussed different things about the tracking buoys getting the tracking buoys so oh, that okay. they can find the whales and and things like that so there are a bunch of ideas in the works um but it's that is in the early days you know i'm i'm not sure where that'll go if it'll go anywhere but certainly it's exciting you know yeah. anything that potentially could help these animals is exciting so so we'll see but uh that's cool yeah all right do you have um what's one of your favorite memories from being out in the field i'm very lucky um i'm very grateful i've, I've got a few um uh some favorite memories um you know oh you know we had some we've had some cool 
experiences with blue wells in Loreto where um, it's just been towards sunset, you know, often they're feeding on krill and the krill come to the surface at night or come nearer to the surface. So the animals are feeding at the surface and there's like these insane sunsets. And then you've got these 90 foot long animal, like lunge feeding, you know, your boat is off. You're just, you know, you're just floating there, whatever. And these big animals just lunge feeding around. Um, so that's been cool. Um, some sperm whales breaching in the Gulf of Mexico. That's, that's been fun. Uh, we had a, mm. a baby sperm whale um, breaching way out there in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, uh, yeah, melon-headed whales. Um, they're an offshore, like small oh, toothed cool. whale, a dolphin. And um, we had in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, we had a, a group of like 400 like bow riding on the Odyssey for like four what? hours. It was, it was incredible. And I hadn't even seen this species before. And they're just all around for so long. And it was, um, it was, the water was like crystal glass. We weren't actually studying them. We were on our way to another group of sperm traveling. whales, but um, they were, we were traveling. Yeah. So but uh, but that's ride. part of it. But uh, wow. they were hitching a free ride. I mean, we, I don't know, they, we must've taken them a long way from, you know, where they were at the time, uh, you know, when we found them or when they found us, like that's, that's where they wanted to be. And when we, when they left us, they were a long way from there. So it's an interesting one. Like, is there a cost to that? Like they are not where they started and they were where they started for a reason. You know, it's unlikely that we were going in the exact direction that they wanted to go. So um, they must like bow riding. Right. I mean, it, I don't know if I'm reading <laughs> too much into it, but. Uh, I think that they just go with the flow sometimes i don't think yeah. they have rules like yeah. i think we like yeah. to think that it's like we're, they're feeding or they're not but i think sometimes they just don't have rules and they go yeah. wherever they want and then they're like i know where my pod's at the rest of them i can hear them so whatever yeah sure yeah. i'm sure you're right no i'm sure you're right yeah it was um i i was just i just felt a little bad and yeah, the, I the, the, the em empath in me was like oh i hope we're not like taking you away from like a key feeding ground or something but you know, they know better than I do what they need. So yeah. um, I, I, you know, but uh, they was cool. It was just a nice experience. But um, yeah. I don't know we've had some like cool interactions with humpbacks. You know, humpbacks can show curiosity from time to time. So that's always fun. Um, I, I like the, the big uh, male sperm whales. There's huge sexual dimorphism in sperm whales, right? The, you know, most of the baleen whales, the females are bigger, but the, the mm -hmm. sperm whales, um, tooth whales, uh, the males are much, much bigger and they're just, they're just so powerful and graceful and um, I, it's cool. I haven't seen many male sperm whales, but when you do, it's, um, it's a big, like powerful animal. It's, it's always cool seeing them, but um, yeah. Awesome. There are a few uh, stories. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing the, some of the key ones. Oh, you know what? Bioluminescence. That's a cool one. Mm. If you're, if you're traveling at night and uh, in a smaller boat, I've done some offshore trips and uh Again, this hasn't necessarily been researched, but there's a bunch of bioluminescence in the water and you get dolphins bow riding and the sort of trails of bioluminescence they the leave. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That's, that's magical. Like I've seen that a few times and that's really cool. Um, yeah, humpbacks in Alaska. I don't know. I've got a lot. I, I don't know. <laughs> pretty much yeah, anything with a whale lucky. in it. Pretty much all Yeah, I know, right? I, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. That's humpbacks i know everyone loves them and, and i i want to like the others as well but humpbacks are just so they're easy to love aren't they they're yeah. just they're so charismatic um yeah that that they can be really fun yeah awesome so if you could ask just people in general one thing 
to do for the environment, what would you ask them to do? Like as kind of a call to action. Yeah, sure. You know, I think we're I think we're bombarded these days with, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And there are so many different things. And you know, I personally I just um I try and make the changes that are that are easy for me. You know, I'm not perfect and I, I try and progress, but there are certain things that are really easy for me to do that I, I don't really care that much about. And for some people, it would be the total opposite things. And so, you know, I, you know, my diet is a big one, right? Diet is a, is a, is a big one in terms of climate change and things like that. Not as, you know, it's not just for, for whales, you know, no one's eating. Well, some people are eating whales, but it's not really that thing, but that's an easy one. Like I really like vegetables and things like that. So I'm lucky there. that's an easy change to make. I, I think just, you know, don't beat yourself up, but just just make these changes that um that are, are easy for you to do in your lifestyle, and then just build on that. And you know, I'm 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 working on it as well. You know, no one's perfect, and you you sort of do what you can where you can. And uh, I don't know, like I that's what I'm trying to do, and I've got a long way to go, no doubt. But you know, you're just trying to make a difference in in the areas that you can. Uh, so I, I think that's um that would be my my call to action. Good. Nice. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty similar to what we say a lot of the time too. Trying is better than not. Just doing anything, even the yeah. smallest yeah. things, is helpful. Yeah, just do something. Absolutely. Yeah. Super helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. how can people follow along with your work at Ocean Alliance and with the Snotbot program? And then, how can people support your guys' work since you're a nonprofit? Yeah, I mean, um, so the the first part we were on social media um ocean alliance we're on we're on facebook we're on instagram um we also have a snotbot instagram page which is just snotbot and it the the, the symbol is red and there's you know chris who's the robotics guy he posts some really cool footage there of the, the 360 footage um of of our tagging and snotbot and blue whales like with dolphins bow riding on them there's some really cool footage on that page and on the ocean alliance page as well um so uh, you know those are two ways and that's super important like this is part of our you know it's part of our our mo our mission is to educate people and to to inspire people and to show people these animals you know a lot of people don't get to see whales and we're hoping that by showing them and through social media and stuff that you know and i it's what you're doing as well right what whale nerds yeah. is for so yep. you know trying to trying to get people you know forge a connection between people and and the ocean and whales and so that's super important and, and really valuable for us to, to follow our social media and, and engage with it and comment and all of that. Um, and, you know, we are a nonprofit, you know, if you, if you can donate, but I don't want to, I don't want to push that message on too strong. Um, you know, it's, it's tough time, whatever, but yeah, I mean, if you like what you've heard and you, you know, you're interested in it, then you know please do donate and and even if you know aside from that if you have questions for anyone has questions about ocean alliance about snotbot about tagging about any of this reach out to us our website is pretty hard to remember it's whale.org <laughs> it's a Dang, it's it's a, it's a, a good one so um <laughs> if you ever can't save whales you can just sell the domain and <laughs> and go whale yeah, watching right. wherever you yeah. want <laughs> um so yeah you can you can reach out to us there and our email is info at whale.org it's whale singular whales plural is a different group so some people get confused there we know them they're, they're great people as well but um <laughs> but uh yeah 
you know, reach out, please like engage with us. Like that's, that's what we're here for. It's, it's not just the research. It's, uh, it's communicating that research to the public as well. It's, it's really important to us. So um, please do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for being on with us and talking about whale snot. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate you sticking around through to the end of the episode. And uh, yeah, can't wait to uh, see you on the next one. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening.